Lord, just as surely as you are king of heaven, you're king of this earth as well, that you govern the affairs of men. And as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at Israel, this northern kingdom, Lord, who forsook you, we see your hand upon them. And so, Father, once again, as we look at your scriptures, we just pray that not only would you bless us, but prepare us, Father, for every good work. And so, Lord, once again, we just ask that your spirit would move amongst us to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and greet them. Greetings. Greetings. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 17 and we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday night. As you're turning there... Um, member of our church. He's watching on Facebook right now, Bill Reese. He was been in the hospital, and so he was uh, released, I think it was last Friday, might have been last Thursday. And anyway, Bill, it's good to see you that you're back with us tonight, um, even if it's just on the internet. Second Kings chapter 17. And so one of the things that I realized, uh, Scott, Scott, you have some people in the dark over there. They may want some, some light. Um, one of the things that I, I realized in the death of my father, I mean, it's not that it's not obvious, but when we have somebody that, that leaves us in this world, yeah, they, they go to be with the Lord, but they're no longer with us. I mean, there was just that element of, of missing them. And, and once somebody is, is gone, they're, they're just gone. And you think about all the opportunities that you had to spend time with them and, and the conversations that you wish you had, you could have had. I thank God that I had the last conversation that I did with my father. But all those times are gone because they're just that. They're gone. Well, what we'll be looking at here in chapter 17 is going to be the last time that we address the kings of the northern kingdom because they're going to be gone. They've been disobedient to the Lord, and the Lord has strove with them, and finally their time is up, and they'll be taken into Assyrian captivity. And so, the choice is ours. We see the example, such as this northern kingdom and the various kings who every time they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And so how is it that we approach those who will provide for our needs? You can seek the Lord for them, and we're told if we do in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And we have God that watches over us, God obviously who provides for us, and God who said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. There's trust there, and there's protection there. Or do you look to man? And man, you're included in that and what you're able to do or what somebody else is able to do, even putting them in the place of God. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, it says, speaking of Egypt, and they made Israel their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve with rigor. You will become subservient to the one who provides in your life. That person or people you will look to and you will cling to. That's why God wants to be the provider of our lives. That's why he, he wants us to seek him in prayer. That's why he wants us to cling to him and to cleave to him. He wants to provide for us. And as he provides for us, it's him that we seek after. And again, you see that solidifying of that relationship. Well, because he had no relationship with God, the king of the northern kingdom, Pekah, has formed an alliance with the king of Syria, Rasin. Assyria has come upon the scene, and they're destroying nations. Don't get Assyria mixed up with Syria. There are two different nations. Assyria is east of Syria. But Assyria has gathered strength, and they are now going and destroying nations. And as they would conquer a nation, they would take the population from that nation and plant them somewhere else, and another nation that they had conquered and plant them in that other nation. Well, since Pekah has forsaken the Lord, he looks to man for help. So a part of the plan, Pekah and Rezin, you have Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. They look to strengthen their position, seeking help from the southern kingdom. We saw it last week, Ahaz. 
But Ahaz, he refuses them, and he allies himself with Assyria. He's of the mindset, if you can't beat them, join them. And so what he does is he approaches the Assyrian king and basically pays him off, tells him to go away or at least protect him. And he goes and he empties some of the temple treasures, that which was dedicated to God, in order to see that this man provides for safety for his nation and for his rule. But because of this, Pekah and Rezin, they get upset. They want to unseat Ahaz from his throne, and so they attack Judah, and they even gain an element of success. They're able to go up to the very gates of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is fortified, and they can't penetrate, but they go and they conquer some of the other cities, and we saw last week how they, they took some, uh, some of Judah captive. During this attack, Ahaz pays Assyria to attack Syria, which it does. So Assyria sees that Syria is vulnerable because their troops are in the south, and he goes and he attacks them as Assyria invades Syria. They're able to sack Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and they kill King Rezin. When your provider can't provide for himself, then something is very wrong. And so now you have the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom's got a big problem. They're very vulnerable. Their alliance with Syria, it's been destroyed. The southern kingdom, they've aligned themselves with your enemy. And so the northern kingdom decides something needs to be done for the country's protection. In 2 Kings 15.30, we see, Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck and killed him, so he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, son of Uzziah. So Pekah, his strategy didn't work out, and they're realizing how vulnerable they are. We've got to do something, and the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the king. And so they assassinate the king, and this man, Hoshea, he's put in his place. So it is here where we pick up our story. At the reign of Hoshea, he's going to be the last king of the northern kingdom. Verse 1, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. He didn't do as bad as the others did, but we don't compare ourselves to one another. He's still going to lose the kingdom because, bottom line, regardless of how bad he was, he still did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the evil that he did can be all wrapped up in the nutshell of he did not or he was not obedient to God and God's word. And so Hoshea, he does just as Ahaz does. He pledges his kingdom to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. And as he does that, he's paying tribute to that man. Because again, keep in mind, when a country would enter in and conquer another country, they would put them under tribute. You could not occupy that country because you probably didn't have enough troops. So you would go and conquer that country, and then you would, in essence, tax them. And then you would go off on your other adventures and all. And this country every year would pay tribute or a tax, if you will. And when a country would rebel and not pay it, then you'd have to go back in and reconquer it once again. So Hoshea, he's of the mindset, well, I'll do just as Ahaz did. Seemed to work out okay for him. And he pledges his kingdom to this Assyrian king. The problem, Judah and Israel... They have now both forsaken God and have placed their hope in a pagan man. They have placed their hope in this nation and they have forsaken the living God. Now this is a God, and we're going to look at this a little bit, who has provided for them every step of the way. This is a God who took them out of Egypt, who led them through the wilderness all of those years, who brought them into the promised land, this land that was flowing with milk and honey. The first place they came into was that fortified city of Jordan, and God provided as he tore down the walls and gave Israel a great victory, as he chased out all of the people of the nations, and Israel was able to be planted there, and they thrived as they sought after the Lord. So... Instead of humbling themselves at this point before the king of kings, they are now at the mercy of a very cruel ruler. Now, 
in Genesis, we've seen Jacob's life. Jacob was a man who depended upon man rather than God as well. Jacob's problem was it wasn't just some man. Jacob depended upon himself. He was kind of a, he was called a heel catcher, but he was kind of a conniver. He was always trying to work things out according to his own mind and according to his own intellect. Well, the story goes in Genesis chapter 32, as he was faced with his brother who had promised to kill him, Jacob had worked out a plan, but God is demanding dependency upon him. And so the problem with Jacob, God kept allowing these situations to rise up for the express purpose of Jacob's dependency upon God. And it's the same thing that he does in our lives. You can wonder, how come I keep going through these trials? How come I keep going through these tribulations? Well, God's trying to get your attention. He's knocking at the doorstep of our hearts. And and he does these things because he wants us to seek after him. And as I've said so many times before, it's during those difficult days that we passionately pray to the Lord and we seek the Lord out. And so many times it's necessary that we get brought to that point so that our relationship with him, well, our relationship with the world is severed, our relationship with ourselves, our dependency upon ourselves is forsaken, and we seek the Lord out. Again, God who said that he's going to provide for all of our needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. Well, there was Jacob that one night, he's left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, when Jacob couldn't meet this, beat this guy, he touched the socket of his hip. God touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. Well, we know the solution to Jacob's plan at this point, it was to basically run away. And so that night, you probably had nights like that. He's in his tent, you in your bed, and you've devised this whole situation, this whole scheme based upon how you can best get away from whatever it is that is keeping you awake, remedy your problem, and trying to work it out in your mind rather than praying to God and seeking the Lord out for what his solution to it may be. Or maybe you know what God's solution is and you don't want to go that direction. Well, so Jacob, I have imagined this wrestling match had a lot to do with God convicting him of what he needs to do, him not wanting to do it. And there's just that big wrestling match. I think we have all wrestled with God at some point in our lives. And so what God does is he brings Jacob to the point of dependency. Because again, Jacob's solution to his problem was simply just to run away. What happens when God knocks the socket of your hip out of joint? You can't run anymore. And now he's at that place where, well, God says, hey, your name's no longer Jacob. Jacob means hill catcher, conniver, schemer. But your name is now Israel. Israel literally means governed by God. Because when you want to run and you can't run and that's your only plan, now he's brought him. God has brought Jacob to the point of dependency. And it was a good thing because just surmising the rest of the story, that God had already gone before him and spoken to the heart of his brother so that what he thought was going to be his doom was really no longer an issue. God had done a work. And so God wants dependency upon him. And so the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom, they never sought after the Lord. They sought after the surrounding nations. They sought after false gods, but they never would seek after God. Matter of fact, we saw out of 20-some kings in the southern kingdom... Only about eight of them sought after the Lord. And we'll all have that choice. You can all choose who it is that is going to govern your lives. Who it is that is the Lord over your life. God gives us all that choice. And so there's Joshua. Joshua, they they just conquered the land. They got it settled. They were told to completely kill off all of the people who were in the land. They didn't do it. They left some alive. But basically... They're going to settle in, and this is the last meeting that Joshua is going to have with the leaders. So he gathers all the leaders together, and he tells them in Joshua 24, 15, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, 
whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. So we see that who you serve is a decision who you, or that you make. And, and your service, your service will be seen in your manner of life and basically who it is that you worship. And Joshua is saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the God who defeated the gods of the Egyptians. Matter of fact, the gods of the Egyptians weren't even really gods at all. They were figments of man's imagination. We're going to serve the God who truly is, who provided that manna in the wilderness. Every day he provided for our every single need, seemingly out of nothing. We needed water that one time, and out of a rock, the water fall, or flew. What did it do? It flowed. <laughs> when we needed food, every morning it was there. There was the manna with the exception on the Sabbath, but the day before, there was twice as much. And so he understood what God's provision was. And there was the time when we were to cross the Jordan, and the Lord, he split the Jordan. And again, there was people who were bigger, mightier. The cities were, 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 were greater than we could conquer, but nonetheless, God tore down the walls and basically chased the people off. And so what Joshua is saying here is, as for me and my family, those I have control and influence over, we're going to serve the Lord. And I guarantee you, if you serve the Lord, people are going to see you as God's. He's going to see you as God's possession. And and it's going to make an impact. It's going to make a difference. It's going to have influence upon those people who are around you in future generations. I literally guarantee it. Because my wife and I, we were kind of taking stock of our family, our imperfect family. Nobody's family is, is perfect. But right now, each of my children are serving the Lord. And we're just blown away by it. And, and, and people will ask them, well, how do you know that? Or, or they'll ask them questions and they'll say, because my parents gave us two devotions every single day. We kept them in the Word. We drug them to church every time the church was open. And it had a lasting impact upon them. There were times when we thought, are they just going to completely walk away from the Lord? But I guarantee you, when the hard days come, the difficult times come, they come back to the Lord. So a constant theme throughout Israel's history is how Israel chose the gods that were defeated by their God. They chose the gods of Egypt. They chose the gods of the land. They chose these foreign kings that were defeated by the God of Israel, not understanding that you have all that you need in your relationship with God. And it's the same thing. We ought not to be turning to man today. We ought to be seeking the Lord out as we understand the grace of God. And as Jesus Christ has died for us and has cleansed us and has called us into his family, that we're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that our Father will provide for us. In our lives, dependency will reveal sovereignty. Who's sovereign over your life? Who's the Lord over your life? It's he who you depend upon. Who or what you depend upon in this life is who you will trust for your well-being. And we see this issue being played out, or at least spoken of. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We have a warning here. We have a warning that the kings of Israel and a few of the kings of Judah would have, been, would have done well to heed. And I want you to consider the things that are being said here. This is the do not be yoked together verse. So many people use this for marriage, as you should. But it extends to so many other areas of our lives. It extends to our business life. It extends to our friendships and the relationships that we choose so that we need to understand what God's desire is here. So he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, keep in mind, there's a question being asked here. And in the scriptures, when the question is asked, the answer is always to the negative. It says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Well, the implied answer is none. And what communion has light with darkness? Implied answer is none. And what accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Now, the term yoked comes from attaching two animals together for a common purpose in order to achieve a desired goal. So if you were wanting to plow a field, you would attach two oxen together and they would pull the plow. You would direct it, but they would pull the plow. But you would want to yoke together two of the same animals, or two animals, I should say, that have the same nature. God said in Deuteronomy, and I believe this is to keep the example pure, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why? Well, it would be ridiculous to do that because the animals would have two completely and opposite natures and they would not be able to achieve the desired purpose, the desired work that you would have. And so it just makes sense, but it's also the word of God that if I'm going to yoke two animals together, I better get two oxen or two donkeys or whatever it might be. I mean, I know this is kind of ridiculous and extreme, but you would not yoke together a dog and a cat. And again, just the illustration of using the two different natures. It just would not make sense, and you would not be able to do anything. So it's the same thing to get for us. We're not to be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Because there's two different natures there. It's just not going to work. Now, when he says... What fellowship, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship? When he speaks of fellowship, he speaks of mutual sharing. You've got nothing for each other. An unbeliever has a completely different nature than you have, so you're not going to be able to achieve your purpose. You won't have fellowship with an unbeliever. You won't have communion or public association. You're not going to be able to have a witness for Christ as you're yoked together with an unbeliever. It's going to attract from that. He says, what accord have we? Accord is an agreement. The idea is, the picture is, harmony between musical instruments. If you have a guitar, you just had a guitar, and then you have a young man over here playing a gazoo, it's not going to work out very well. At least I wouldn't think it would. I don't know that much about music, but we'll never have one on this stage. Um, It's just going to detract from the purpose of worship. It's not yoked together properly. And it says, what What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Baal, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What part, the idea is, of the body of Christ. You are both parts of different bodies. Now, what happens when somebody has some sort of transplant? When they have a transplant, especially with a major organ or whatever it might be, for the rest of their lives, they have to take anti-rejection drugs. Because the body is seeing something foreign there, something that ought not to be there, and it's constantly trying to reject it. And it's the same thing to be yoked together with an unbeliever is just not something that is natural. There's going to be that constant force that is trying to push it, push that relationship apart. And when it says, in what agreement has the temple of God with idols, the idea of agreement has to be with two people that are coming together for the purpose of making a decision. They're not going to be able to come to a decision, at least not one that God is going to be able to honor. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Therefore, or because of all of that, the futility of it all, it says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. When he says, Come out from among them, the idea is, it's an illustration of what Israel did when they came out from amongst Egypt. This was God's people. And what did God do? He reached his hand amongst his people who were in Egypt, and he he pulled them out. And they were to be separated from Egypt. Remember what Egypt is? Egypt is a picture of the world. And as God pulled his people from the world, they were not to go back to the world. As God has reached into the world and reached into our lives, he pulled us away from the world. And we ought to never go back to the world. 
regardless of what's going on in our lives or the hardship that we experience, we are to seek God in all instances. The same God who delivered me from the world is able to keep me as I am apart from the world. But what was Israel constantly of the mindset to do? Oh, I wish we would have been able to go back to Egypt. We had food to eat in Egypt. They were saying we had it so great in Egypt, forgetting all the hardship, and they had that desire to go back. But there is never, 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 there is never any turning back. Go ahead and turn back to Second Kings, chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. Shalamaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, and he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he has done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. It's now about 727 B.C. in Tiglath-Pileser. He has died. The worldly tend to do that. That's why we don't put our trust there. King Hoshea, he sees what he believes to be an opportunity to become unyoked from Assyria. As the king has died, he's seeing this as an opportunity to no longer have to pay that tribute and get out from underneath the bondage that he's in. So he devises a plan with this man So, S-O, the king of Egypt, pharaoh of Egypt, but somehow it's discovered by Assyria. Both Assyria and Egypt, who Israel depended upon from time to time for their well-being, both now are turning against them. Now, I've read this verse for the last few weeks in our evening study here, but in James 4.4, a reminder, it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so Hoshea's got a problem. The northern kingdom of Israel, they got a big problem. They become friendly with the world to their benefit. Whoever of the world is able to provide for them, but in doing so, they've become an enemy with God. And this has been Israel's problem from the start when the kingdoms were divided. The northern kingdom never made itself a friend with God, and now we'll be seeing the results of what happens when you make yourself an enemy of God. Verse 5. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all of the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the harbor, the river Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. It is now that we will see the end of the reign of Hoshea and the fall of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. To be a friend of the world is to be in fellowship with the world, and again, to rebel against the world is to be an enemy of the world. So what happens when you've made yourself an enemy of God, and now you've made yourself an enemy of the world, now they find themselves out in the cold. God says, if you make yourself a friend of me, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You may seem alone at times, but God, again, is just wanting your attention for you to turn to him. But he has given us that rich promise. I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. So in the midst of all of our times of trials and tribulations, God is there. Maybe not working according to our timetable, but definitely working according to his plan. But what happens when you make yourself a friend of God? Because you made yourself a friend of the world. Now the world, when you're no benefit to them, is going to leave you. And then now all of a sudden, you're all alone. You're all by yourself. And so now we see the fall of Samaria. This is proven by our relationships in our lives, both before and after Christ. I'm sure we've all experienced this. So it's in 725 B.C. that Assyria besieges Samaria, and the siege lasts for some three years. In the middle of it, Shalamaneser, he dies, but his general, Sargon II, takes over. In 722 B.C., Samaria falls, and great will be their fall. Again in verse 6, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in those cities, in Halah and by the harbor and the river Gosan and in the cities of the Medes. And so... 
they brought them to the east and never again were people going to see their homelands. Assyrian records tell us that over 27,000 people were taken captive from the city of Samaria alone. There were a lot of other captives taken, but they took 27,000 from the city of Samaria. This was a fortress that has been penetrated, and they took them and they brought them to another land. Again, this was a serious practice. They would take the captives of one land and bring them to another. So think about that. What, what if some country came in and attacked the United States and defeated it, and so they got all of us together, and they brought us over to Iraq, and they had attacked Iraq previously, and they brought those captives here. Now here, we may continue to fight for our nation, but what happens when you're defeated and you're by yourself, you know, or maybe in a group, but still by ourselves, in a foreign land? And that was their mindset. It was their mindset, if you rebel against us, because it was also an example to other nations, we're going to destroy you. Well, God is using the same mindset. He's using that thought that if you rebel against God, this is what's going to happen. And so the people of Samaria will forever be considered a hybrid race by the people of Judah, rejected by the Jews. They could no longer prove their lineage, and because of that, the Jews looked down upon them. In John chapter 4, verse 9, when Jesus met that woman of the well, we see that mindset was still during the Lord's time even. It says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, said to the Lord, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They thought that they were an unclean race, an unclean people. Today, Today, there's still a small community of Samaritans that can be found in Israel in the city of Nablus. But for most part, the race has pretty much died out. And so you had Judah. God still has rich promises through the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is at. They're going to rebel later on and be brought into Babylonian captivity. But Messiah has been promised through the tribe of Judah. And so God is able to keep his promises, and he's able to keep his people. There's going to be a restoration of Judah, and then Jerusalem will be reestablished. The temple will be reestablished all the way through to the Lord's day. But the northern kingdom, those tribes, were never, ever reestablished. And so there was population that was brought up there during the Lord's time, and even a little bit before that. But again, they can never, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom could never identify themselves from that time on. Their problem, they completely and fully rejected the Lord. Ultimately, we know that God owned the land and the people and would one day, he is going to one day restore all. There's going to be a future dependency upon a man of the world for Israel's well-being who will once again turn against him. We know this to be the Antichrist. There will be a wholesale, though, turning back to God during that time of tribulation by the nation. And through God's grace, Israel will once again be blessed and be a blessing to all the world. And so you can think, well, what about the lost tribes? Well, in God's sight, there's no such thing as lost tribes. God knows those who are his, and God is going to restore Israel again. Now, here we live in the church age. Israel, Israel's far from God. There are Jews who are saved, but they're saved by, by grace through faith. They come into the kingdom of God the very same way that we come into the kingdom of God. If they die apart from Christ today, then they're lost forever, just as a Gentile who dies apart from Christ is lost forever. But as far as nation Israel, generally speaking of nation Israel, generally speaking of the church, we live in the church age. There's going to come the time of the rapture where God is going to, after that, turn his attention back towards nation Israel. And it's going to be during the time of the rapture that you're going to see revival. We won't see it. Well, we'll see it, but we'll be seeing it from heaven. But we'll see that God's attention is, is, is directed back towards Israel, and there's going to be revival in that land. There will still be Gentiles saved at that time, but Israel's heart is going to be turned back to the Lord, and you'll, we're going to see, from the perspective of heaven, you're going to see, again, this great revival that happens in the nation Israel. We're told this in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. He's speaking of nation Israel. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
Now, if their fall is riches to the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul speaking, I magnify my ministry. And so there's going to come the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. Again, the rapture of the church. And then God's attention is going to be turned back towards Israel. And many Israelites, many Jews are going to be saved. But as far as during this time of Second Kings, there's that rejection. And as the northern kingdom has rejected God, God now has rejected them. So what we see for the remainder of the chapter, I'm going to go through it pretty rapidly, is basically just a, a Holy Spirit given an explanation of Israel's fall. And so in verses 7 through 12, we see the initial apostasy. It says in verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. They had turned their affections from the living God to these false gods. Verse 8, And had not walked in the statutes or lived their lives according to the statutes of the nations, the nation whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified cities. For they set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense in all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. It's pretty bad when you provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. What Israel practiced in secret became a public norm for their society. You remember how things, for those of you who are my age, or I guess if you're not as old as I am, you can look in history books. But what was acceptable, acceptable in society, not that it didn't go on, but there are certain things that weren't acceptable in society, and you really didn't hear much about them, although things that, you know, sexual perversions and so on and so forth. But then all of a sudden, through the arts, through TV, through theater, through music, these things just started coming into the mainstream, and there was kind of a breaking down of morals and morality. And you look at what we have today, just on regular TV, compared to what they had in movies back then that kids couldn't see, there's a lot of similarities to there. These things that were going on in secret now become public. And you see this slipping away from the Lord in a nation that the Lord will bless. And so in Israel, the things that they were practicing... Then all of a sudden they started building these high places. Now, a lot of these high places and a lot of these forms of worship were obscene. They had to do with things of a sexual nature. And we've seen this with kingdoms and empires that had existed. They always regressed to obscenity, some kinds of things, of some sort of sexual perversion or perversions. And it's after that 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 society is not long for this world. I wonder how long our society is for this world. And so just as the inhabitants of the promised land were judged and destroyed for such practices, so was Israel, just as God had warned. In Deuteronomy 6.14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, but they did. At issue is the biblical reality that you become like that which you worship. Verse 13 through 17, we see a rejected opportunity for grace because God God always is there if you're there to repent verses 13 through 17 yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets every seer saying turn from your evil ways so he's given them opportunity it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I command your fathers and which I sent to you by my servant the prophets Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks, like the necks of their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. And they followed idols and became idolaters and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. 
So they fell, or say they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. This is human sacrifice. Practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke them to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. And that's just for that period of time. And again, you've got to bring this into our nation. Take your Bible and do a survey of where our country is as far as biblical morals, as far as the things which they did back then and God judged them, just as truly as God judged them back then, God's going to judge. He's going to judge the world today. He's going to give opportunity, and he continues to give opportunity. We're told in Genesis chapter 6, God strives with man, but he's not going to strive with man forever. There's going to come that time when judgment is going to come. And again, we looked at this reality on Thursday night in our study of Jeremiah, but we have to see that judgment is a reality in the scriptures, and we ought not to shy away from it. Now, we rejoice in the grace of God, but God is not going to just overlook the sins of man. Man must acknowledge his sin, and he must repent. And then the remainder of the chapter, I'll just go through it fairly quickly. We have the judgment of the Lord. Verse 19. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. So they lived as Israel did. The southern kingdom lived as the northern kingdom did. It was about a hundred years after the fall of the northern kingdom that the southern kingdom fell. Verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hands of the plunderers until he cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which they did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is this day. But what did God do? God gave them the commands. We see it in Deuteronomy before they entered into the promised land. He gave them the warning. So God has the word. But what does God do when man ignores the word? He raises his voice by sending the prophet. That the prophet would get the attention, drive man back to the word, and man would repent and get right with God. What did they do? They ignored the prophets. They even killed the prophets. Verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon. So he's repopulating the northern kingdom, as he has taken them away captive, these are those whom he repopulated the northern kingdom with. He brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, uh, uh, Kutha Ava, Hamath, and from Sephavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possessions of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions amongst them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions amongst them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. And so this priest that was brought into captivity, I don't know if he was of the tribe of Judah or if he was one of the priests of the false god, but nonetheless he brought the, he, they brought him in in order to tell him of the living God. So there was a witness in the land still, but notice how verse 29 starts out. However... However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. So what does this tell me? It tells me that there's an opportunity, if you will, for the gospel to go out to those nations. But Samaria, even though they stumbled, they also caused these other nations to stumble. You see the witness and they had this opportunity and... 
Well, it was just defiled completely. Verse 30. The men of Babylon and Sakoth, uh, Benoth, the men of Cuth, made Nagal, uh, made the men of Hamath and Ashima, and the Avites made um, Nebaz and Tabak, Tab, <laughs> let me try that again, Tarkat, and the Shaviaths burnt their children in fire to Admir, Melech and Admelech, the gods of Sephavrium. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for themselves in the shrines in the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day they continue practicing former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law of the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances, the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget. Nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all of your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. And you just see how this apostasy and how this rejection of God, it just goes so deep. And the idea is, is all they had to look and see was reality and how God, through the history, has worked in the nations and through his nation, Israel. And they, even in the face of all of that, they still rejected him. I just want to close with this one last section of scripture, this warning that God gave Israel before they entered into the promised land. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. The idea is a choice. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go and to possess. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. We need to look back, and we need to understand, just as truly as God allowed judgment to come into their lives, I want to dwell in the land of grace that God has given me, the blessed Christian life. The Christian life that is obedient to the call of God, that seeks after the word of the Lord and constantly prays to God, seeking the provision of the Lord into my life. That we would not join us together with the world and the things of the world, that we would keep our church pure and our lives pure. And as we do so, that we would experience the good blessings of our gracious God. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. And I just pray, Father, that we would cling to it. And Lord, just as the people of the former days, they rejected, Lord, not just your word, but Father, how you moved in the nations and in the lives of the people of the nations. And they ignored all that and sought after, well, sought after the things of their flesh. Father, may it not be so with us. I pray, Father, that we would be found faithful. And I pray as we do that we would see how our faithful God moves in the lives of his people. So, Lord, I lift up those who've come out tonight. I pray that you would go before them. I pray that you would bless them. 
I pray, Father, that you would give us a passion for your ways, that, Lord, you would be glorified in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? This coming week, um, we're still taking sign-ups for the Valentine's dinner. If anybody's interested, that's going to be on February 17th. And also, our high schoolers are going away on retreat this coming weekend. So keep them up in prayer. Just pray that God does a new work in their lives, that God would change them, and God would set them on a course that glorifies his holy name. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Have a good night.